This New America NYC event took place on September 21st, 2015, and is titled From Application to Enrollment, Helping Students Make Better Decisions on Going to College, and is presented in partnership with Public Agenda, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that helps diverse leaders and citizens navigate divisive, complex issues and work together to find solutions, and features Paul Marthers, Carmel Polensky, Laura A. Bruno, R. Yumi Modesta, and Kim Clark. Okay, well, uh, thanks for joining us this evening. Um, everybody wants to help uh, Americans make better education decisions, but there's a fundamental problem. Um, it takes wisdom to make good decisions, but we all know that wisdom is often the result of bad decisions. So unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, people who make bad college decisions are increasingly saddled with unpayable student loans that can cause life-altering troubles. So every year there are hundreds of reports and conferences and meetings like these about how to fix our higher education system to address these kinds of problems. Um, as Rachel just mentioned, the good news is that some of these meetings and conferences and reports are actually resulting in changes. Um, we heard the Obama administration just in the last couple of weeks has moved the federal aid application earlier so people can get a better, clearer sense of how much their college is really gonna cost. And uh, the new and improved federal college scorecard is going to provide indications of previous students' earnings and student loan repayment records. So there is hope. Progress is being made, uh, but providing better data is just one step. Um, we've got plenty more work to do to develop even more useful information and to help people use this information more wisely. So we're gonna hear from lots of experts, from people up here, and for you, the people in the audience. I'd like to ask now, how, raise your hand if you, are, if you have a student in your life who you're trying to help or you work with students. Right, so this is great. Um, so we're gonna hear from you, the experts here and here, about uh, what the real barriers are and what the real world solutions can be to help students. Um, the ideas that come out of this conversation can not only help you work with the students in your life, but could result in some policy changes that improve the lives of all Americans. So uh, let me start by introducing our panelists. We have a great group today. Um, Paul Marthers is Associate Vice Chancellor and Vice Provost for Strategic Enrollment Management and Student Success, there's a long title, um, at the State University of New York, which means he oversees admissions, financial aid, and the programs to support students to get to graduation for 64 campuses. Uh, right, he's a busy man. Uh, before this, he worked for a who's who of colleges, including Rensselaer, Reed, Oberlin, BC, you name it. Um, he earned a bachelor's from Bo Oberlin, two masters, one from BU and one from Reed, and a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. Let's see, uh, Laura Bruno is uh, Assistant Dean of Enrollment Management of Queensborough Community College. Uh, she previously oversaw admissions for the New School uh, for Social Research and CUNY's York College. She earned her bachelor's degree from NYU and has a master's degree in social work from Adelphi. And Carmel, uh, Carmel Paleski has worked in education for 16 years. For the last five years, she's been the Director of Academic Affairs at the Manhattan Educational Opportunity Center in Harlem. It provides free academic programs such as English for speakers of other languages, high school equivalency pre prep preparation, and 
in college prep as well as vocational training to adults. And she has her master's in education from Harvard University and a bachelor's from UNC Chapel Hill. And Umi Modest is a college advisor, a college advisor at City as School High School in Greenwich Village, which is a 600-student school that emphasizes learning by doing and internships. She's a proud alumni of the New York City public school system and, and Ithaca College, and she got her master's um, in education from Hunter. So in order to get the conversation going, I'm gonna start off by asking our panelists a few basic questions, and then we'll open the discussion to the audience. Um, to make sure everybody gets a chance, I'm going to invoke one of the most successful public education programs ever, Sesame Street, and say this discussion is brought to you by the number two. Um, I'll ask everybody up here and in the audience that when you speak, you take more than no, no more than two minutes and make no more than two points. Okay, so let's try to keep that. So I'm gonna start out, we'll start this way. Uh, Paul, what do you think are the two most common mistakes families and students make when thinking about college? Sure. Um... Well, one would be, I think, what I call short horizon thinking. Recognize thinking too much about the short run. What am I getting now? What will this get me in four years? Rather than this is an education for life. And when you get older, you realize that more than when you were 17. Um, and then the other might be the narrow focus on what a student might consider at that moment in time. I would say broaden your focus. You'll grow. And that point, I think, is related to the first point. Good job, by the way. Two minutes, two points. Um, I'm really kind of focused on the application process. So I would say um, one is something that um, I would call being a stealth applicant, which is a little bit of um, higher ed jargon. But there are a lot of students that um, don't go ahead and um, ask for information from schools prior or show up at events. Um, they may not visit the rep in their high, when they come to their high school. And so the first time a college uh, hears about them is when they apply. And a lot of colleges kind of measure something called demonstrated interest. And so it's important if you're working with a student to make sure that they make themselves known to the school prior um, to applying. Am I rounding the two minutes? I can do one more okay, quick. One more. Um, and the other I would say is uh, to choose colleges, um, and this kind of links to what Paul was saying, don't choose colleges based on where your friends are applying, you know, to really kind of think outside the box for a good fit for you. I think um, they're particularly vulnerable, um, traditional age students being very influenced by their peers, and that may not be the right decision. I work with mostly adults, um, 30 or older. And so I would say um, something that I see some common mistakes is just going to the school closest to them um, because they have a family, they have a job, they have commitments, and they're not necessarily open to the idea of considering a school a short distance away by Metro North. It's more costly on the train. They may not be able to afford that um, or a bus trip or even uprooting their family and their support network to go to school. So they don't necessarily consider whether the school has the program they want, as the data shows, which I thought was really good, um, or their graduation rate or their full-time employment rate. It's like, well, I can get there and it's free, so I'll go. 
And um, I think they stole my answers they, 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 before we got up here because I was going to say some things that they were going to say. But then I would also say waiting to apply. I think that adults who are 30 or 40, you know, they're like, I want to do it by Thanksgiving or, you know, I need to do this by my kid's 16th birthday. And so they have kind of dates in their mind that we don't have in our mind. I want to do this by February. Like, well, you should have applied in October, (laughs) right? So I think understanding the timeline is really helpful for older adults. First, I would say looking at the cost of the school as a determining factor in whether or not to apply, that's a mistake. Look at the cost as a determining factor in whether or not to enroll, but not when you're doing the applications. Look at the other factors, the good fit factors, in other ways, socially, academically, would be, in my experience with my students, that's the first mistake that they make that they don't even apply to a school that may have everything they want because, oh, miss, I can't afford that. How do you know? We didn't even do FAFSA yet. <laughs> so I would, for me, that's the first thing. And then the second mistake that I see with students and parents is parents having unrealistic expectations of where their students can or should go, and the students being sadly and unfortunately influenced by their parents' lack of information. Hmm. Okay, so I'll start this way now. Um, What are the two biggest barriers that are preventing Americans from getting the education they need at a price they can afford? What's stopping people from making good, good choices and good decisions? College is ridiculously overpriced. And for one of the biggest barriers, of course, everybody's going to say financial aid. Finances in general are a huge barrier for most. But I think for the middle income family, it's even harder than for the lower income family. And obviously, a family who can just write the check, there's, that's not a barrier. But I think for the vast majority of middle income families, the finances are a huge barrier. You're talking about the public lack of public subsidy. The lack of public subsidy, the, um, the ridiculously low bar for uh, financial aid for the Pell Grant. A family mm-hmm. in New York City, a family is subsisting on $50,000 a year. And if you have two children, if it's two parents and two children, you're barely getting by on 50000 you're probably living with another family to share the rent or uh, share the mortgage or whatever. So I would say far and above the finances are, are the greatest barrier. And then the second one is, just like in the other question, misinformation. So I would think one of the things that, that holds people back is an accurate cost. Um, so you hear 35,000 or 600 a credit or 1,200 a credit. That doesn't really relate to what am I actually gonna pay? Um, and so similarly along those lines, um, and along those lines, I would say hidden costs. I mean, we sell this you know, college campus with a dorm life and 
if no one in your family has ever gone to college, you don't know maybe that you need bathroom shoes and a um, house coat or a, a bathrobe, thank you, um, a bathrobe or something to go down the hall to the bathroom, extra long sheets. And when you, you know, travel back and forth, the campus closes for Thanksgiving, you can't stay there. Right, so as a first in my family to go to college and to graduate, those were things that that I might have known by reading through the packet, and I might have been able to plan for, and I did, but not everyone does. And when they can't afford the biology book, or when the girl next door has her room decked out like it looks like IKEA, and you're like, I got one pillow and one set of sheets, uh, I really fit in. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, I think that's a barrier that folks don't realize and it's hard to create policy around, but I think we oftentimes think about financial aid and tuition. We don't necessarily think about what's that monthly Metro card gonna cost? And if they're going to work and picking up their kid from from daycare and to school, they can't get by on a two-way fare. So they're gonna have to get a monthly and how can you afford that in New York City on less than $50,000 with two kids? So that's what I'll say about that. Okay. Um, I would certainly say affordability as well, but also I think um, access to higher ed. And what I mean by that is there are um, some low-income students who um, are living in areas where the schools are not perhaps providing the AP classes, the rigor in the curriculum. Um, And if you have looked at sort of what Um, not even the Ivy League, but top-tier institutions are really expecting in terms of academic preparedness, those students are falling short. They don't have that. Now, the story that admissions people will say is, we kind of look at what your school offers. Um, However, when you're really looking at elite colleges, those um, admissions offices are reluctant to use a completely different yardstick, right, than everyone else. And um, there was a recent um, statistic which I pulled up. 70% of low-income students who were accepted to elite universities came from 15 metropolitan areas where there are schools like, in New York City, a Stuyvesant. So there's those public schools which are sort of held up as the gems. The rest of the students really are not gaining that access. So I would, I would certainly say that the, um, the high school landscape is vastly different. Anyone who's done recruiting in high schools will know and see just how different it is um, from location to location. And that has an effect. That's really an uneven playing field. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I used to work for a summer program called um, Math and Science for Minority Students, and we would talk about that because a lot of the students were coming from the top public schools and you know major metro areas. Um, so I think there's two areas, and everyone's really touched on it. One is I think the whole ascendance of the private good over the public good. I mean, we now think of higher ed as a private good, unfortunately. Um, Lack of, def- lack of funding, and then there's a lot of misinformation. The research showed that people don't really understand uh, how much it might be to pay back a loan. Um, and I think the public dialogue, the political rhetoric, all sort of is full of a lot of half-truths and untruths, and some of it is about, uh, oh, run it like a business. There's all this waste in colleges and universities. Well, just 
Not really. I mean, take a look at what happened, starting with uh, electing an actor for president. We've defunded higher education. We've the states. Nobody wants to pay for it. I mean, the University of California used to be free. Uh, I mean, we used to have the best public education in the world because we we funded it, and now we think it's a private good, and sort of everybody's on their own to pay for. It. And there's winners. Very few, and there's a lot of losers, and it's really unfortunate. Okay, well, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, what are the two most important things your organization is doing to address these problems, Paul? Okay, well, we'll say something positive. Um, <laughs> maybe as I grew up listening to a guy who's now running for president, and he's like a cranky 74-year-old guy, but a lot of what he says is true. <laughs> Um, sorry for that little advertisement. I used to live in Vermont. Um, well, we're trying at SUNY to demystify the cost of college. We have these tools, we call them smart track, and a lot of them have to do with um, financial literacy, and we've created a standard um, financial aid award letter. Um, and also, we're one of the places that really works on keeping the cost down. We have this thing called rational tuition, which means our tuition goes up very little every year. So a SUNY education is still very much a public university uh, price compared to a lot of places. In fact, you can the out-of-state SUNY fees are very similar to many in-state SUNY fees in, in Northeastern and, and other states. Um, at CUNY, we certainly are also addressing um, the affordability factor, and um, but we also are um, dealing with the access um, in, in unique ways because this idea that students are, are, don't always come to us prepared um, to start means that we need to offer them opportunities to brush up on those skills. So we offer a variety of programs for students to start um, and to get ready, to get college ready. They've graduated from high school, they test with us, and we find that they're lacking in reading, writing, and math skills. And so we offer um, programs like CUNY Start, which is basically sort of intensive um, college prep work, like a boot camp for the full semester. They don't use their financial aid for that. It's $75, they attend full time. They get an opportunity to test afterwards, and usually um, there's fantastic results, like 80% of the students are leaving most of their remediation, if not all of their remediation. Um, we have programs like ASAP, which have um, recently um, been spoken about. President Obama spoke about ASAP, which is an accelerated program, which really provides um, mentoring and support for students to get them through. And so I think, um, you know, institutions, like State University and City University of New York are very focused on the mission, which is to provide access and support um, to get students through the program. Um, we also offer um, a college access type program. Uh, we offer a program called College Connections. Um, the EOC, the Manhattan Educational Opportunity Center, will celebrate its 50th year uh, next year. We're located in Harlem. There's one in every borough in New York, and they're also upstate in places like Albany and Rochester. And uh, what we offer is a program that helps students find a school that's gonna be a good fit for you, apply to the school, fill out your, your FAFSA with you, 
go, go on college tours. And we also offer an academic program whereby, because we're funded by SUNY and administered by CUNY, um, students who take part in our college prep program in reading, writing, or math, or all three, or whichever they need, can at the end of the semester, if they've already applied to CUNY and tested into remedial classes, um, take the um, test out of um, remedial classes. Our programs are completely free um, and available to those who qualify. Um, if you're interested for more information, a little plug here, um, you can go to meocollegeconnections.org. And our main website is bmcc.cuny.edu slash MEOC. Um, and so that's something that a lot of people don't know about. And so through word of mouth and through presentations at high schools and presentations at NYCHA housing and throughout the city, we try to get folks to realize it. But this is like a good with a bad. So one of the things is it's like not as cool to go to the MEOC, right? It's cooler to go to like SUNY, oh yeah, right? cooler to go to BMCC, right? It's not as cool to come to the MEOC if you just graduated from high school, right? As a guidance counselor, you're pushing apply and go. As a parent, you're pushing apply and go. As a cousin or as a grandmother, you're pushing apply and go. You're now pushing, oh, you tested into remedial? Why don't you go to the MEOC and get out of them for free? And so I think we, you know, one thing that we do is we do that, but we also need to make it okay. Right, because we need to tell people, however old they are, young adult or someone coming back to school, that you might not have had the opportunity earlier or you might not have taken advantage of the opportunity, but now you can and this is how you can do it. I had another, but someone already said it, so I won't say that one. At City at School, we serve a very unique population in that all of our students are transfers from other high schools that didn't treat them as well as we will. If they come to us and whatever was the problem at the other school persists, we will help them to resolve that problem. What makes City at School unique, as you mentioned with the experiential learning, we have a very strong college and career office, which many other public high schools and particularly transfer high schools do not have. We are fortunate at City at School to have a community-based organization partner. So what we do that I think really makes a difference, like MEOC, we walk our students all the way through the process from college exploration to application, and then we are committed to them through at least the second year of college to continue working with them. I've been at City at School 23 years. I just celebrated my 23rd anniversary. So we still have alumni coming back. Oh, I was supposed to pause so you could clap. <laughs> Thank you. But I say that because we still have alumni who come back to work with us and we welcome them with open arms. So I'm teaching the new staff that when I leave, this is how you take care of our alumni so that they go to MEOC when they're 30 and have two kids and they've been working for 12 years and they go on to SUNY or they go on to CUNY. So I think that the most important thing that we do at City at School <clears throat> is to go all the way through the process with them and then to stick with them once they're in college, making those connections at CUNY, at SUNY, at the private schools so that I can pick up the phone and say, hey, my kid Kim, 
is struggling up there. Can you go check on her? And um, one last thing. We have established a network of angels on various campuses so that we can pick up that phone and say, a student is up at Tompkins Courtland and they're homeless in New York City. They can't come home for Thanksgiving. Can they go to your house? So just that that personal connection, I think, makes the difference. I'm hearing a lot about affordability and, and a lot of hand-holding, a lot of shepherding. Okay, so there are a lot of uh, parents and counselors in the audience. What are two pieces of advice for our audience for helping their, the students that they're dealing with? Do you have any advice for them? Be open. Be in constant communication with the college advisor at your student's school. And if they don't help you, call me. I'll help you. <laughs> um, I would say visit the school. Uh, it's, I think it's very important for a good fit. Um, <laughs> when I got into college for the first time, I went and visited. And I went to one school and was like, ooh, not going there. My mother was like, you got a full scholarship. We can't afford anything else. I'm like, mm not going there. I took on loans to go to UNC Chapel Hill and I'm all the better for it. So I think you should visit, go to the office, talk to people who do the job that you want to do. What did they major in? They don't always major in what you think they majored in. Some people major in art history or psychology or something that they're passionate about and still do X, Y, Z. So I think it's really important. It's not something that anyone told me, but I wish I had done. Um, you know, just go out there and ask people for an informational interview, which is kind of scary, but maybe your teacher or your counselor can hook you up and it would be okay. Um, and then I think it's like, don't be afraid to ask once you get on campus. Um, the writing center's there, the math center's there. Um, you could say, well, I got financial aid and I just need $200, but I don't have any more money. Not true. Go to the financial aid office, right? Um, first generation college students is something I'm very passionate about and they're afraid to ask, right? They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to look like the oddball out. Um, but I found out that Carolina gives what's called emergency loans in the amount of $400 a semester, you have the semester to pay it off. And I had a work study job, so I used my work study job money to pay off the loan. But um, I bought my books, right? That's how I bought my books. Um, and so I wouldn't have known that if someone didn't say, why don't you just go ask? And I was like, oh no, they're gonna look at me funny. Um, and so I would say visit the schools, whether it's BMCC, whether it's City College, or whether it's a school in any other state in the country. Um, try to save up some money and go visit a school. I would say for the application process to get organized, um, it's, not, it's not easy. There are deadlines, there are tests, there are some schools require subject tests. Um, there's interviews, are they required, are they recommended, what does that mean? I think it's very overwhelming. Um, not everybody has a fantastic uh, support um, the way that, you know, um, have here, but I think getting organized, and I mean down to the nitty gritty, creating the folders for each college, kind of writing down those deadlines, keeping track of, of the, the little details, because sometimes it's the little details that trip up the student. They miss that deadline, and that could be the difference between admission or not. That could be the difference between, you know, getting a scholarship, applying for the financial aid, responding to an offer of admission. So I think keeping track of that. And then also just thinking outside the box in terms of creating the list. Um, you know, we 
are in an area that's very saturated um, with great students, you know, and especially some of the, um, you know, the more competitive high schools, the areas surrounding New York City where there's some school districts that are very, very strong and have a lot of well-prepared students. Sometimes that works against our students. Um, and that's because when colleges make decisions, they look in terms of an entire class. And so they want diversity in geography. They want diversity in, in terms of the high schools that they're choosing. So how do you make a student stand out if you have 10 applicants to the same school? Sometimes the answer is you, you really can't. And schools are choosing. They're not going to take all 10 of those well-prepared applicants. So trying to get someone to think outside of that kind of that list of 10 or 15 schools that everybody seems to be applying to. Um, and thinking outside even geographically, sometimes, um, you know, taking a New York student and putting them somewhere else um, might be the sort of the, the novelty that a school is, is looking for. Yeah, that's really all good advice. I think related to that, with financial aid, I mean, deadline, deadline, deadlines always matters. But one thing I learned working in a number of institutions is even getting some of the, the material in can be sort of a lever because a number of places, especially when it comes to recruiting underrepresented or first generation or low income students will go and look at who has partial information and reach out. And a lot of students wouldn't know that. And how would they know that? Um, you know, I think especially for first-generation students, as someone who is one himself, it's, it's, a, it's a balance between you want to aim high versus aiming low and settling, but being realistic at the same time. And so you don't want to set yourself up for failure. I remember reading an article about the young woman who went deep into debt to go to Emory and was able to go there one year. That's like, yes, you aimed high, but... Maybe you should have waited a year so you didn't end up with all that debt. On the other hand, you know, there's people who have much more cultural capital. They were born on third base, you know, and they thought they hit a triple, all that stuff. And they're no better than you if you're lower income and first generation. It's just that they know how to act like they're better prepared. And so that's where I think you have to aim high and assume you're as good as any place that admits you, even if you walk in the door thinking, gee, how did I get in? This is the last question from the panel, and then we'll open it up. If you were stuck in an elevator for two minutes with one of the presidential candidates, what would you tell them about how to improve college access and success? Already foreshadowed some of my answer. Um, <laughs> Some of them might say, are you crazy? Um, <laughs> you know, I think we know. We know what we need to do. We need to invest in, in education. We need to look at the countries with the highest standards of living and literacy and do what they're doing and recognize that we're not the best at everything. And it's okay to say we're not and to try to become it again and, you know, stop spending money to blow up stuff. And so I think, you know, spend money to invest in people. I think I, I agree wholeheartedly. I also would say that um, we need to start, to, and we, we're starting to do this, we need to do more of it. We start to look at collaboration between industry and higher ed. Um, at Queensboro, we have an innovative um, partnership between SAP, which is um, software 
um, company and Queensboro and a high school. And it's kind of modeled on the P-Tech, we're B-Tech. And um, we're really having these really fascinating, interesting conversations about the sort of skills that SAP needs and recruits. And it's a very powerful conversation to have with high school students and to realize that some of their coursework is being kind of um, channeled that way and their college work will as well. I'm not saying it's an answer for everyone, but traditional liberal arts education is not an answer for everyone either. And I think we have to go back to really trying to provide a variety of routes for people and to connect people um, and um, to encourage that, that partnership. Um, this might not sound higher ed related initially, but I'd ask them to look at the poverty scale um, for educational opportunity programs at the SUNY system, which we're a part of, um, for a family size of two, you need to make $29,471 or less to qualify. For a family of three, that could be a single parent with two kids, two parents with one kid, $37,167. If you're living on that much money anywhere in New York, never mind New York City, you after you pay your rent, and you pay for transportation and you buy food, you might not have any money left over. You didn't pay your light bill, you didn't do anything else. And so I really think, you know, we're looking at, you know, for $50,000 and growing up um, first gen student, that sounded like a lot of money, $50,000 when I was growing up, um, but it's not. And it's sad that it's not, but I think we really need to, if I had any one of the presidential candidates, I could convince them um, that this would be it is I would raise that because educational opportunity programs are needed by someone who makes 35 or 40 or 49. And I just think that they're using a old formula that doesn't really work in our modern world and we need to address that. And in doing so, you would look for more funds for Pell Grants and you would put in PSAs, um, you know, like H&R Block is kind of taking over filling out your tax forms for you for a lot of money right? And they're on every corner, right? And so steal some ideas from them, you know, in NYCHA housing or in public housing or um, at libraries and different places, really go hard on the Pell and not say Pell because they're like, ah, who's that, right? But say that if you make this much money at City University of New York, you can go to school for free. Make it local, make it regional. You know, if you went to this SUNY school and you made $45,000, you can go for 1200 a year or whatever. Telling them to apply for the Pell and apply for the FAFSA and the PSA is not gonna do the trick. You have to say, at City you'd pay this, here you'd pay that. And kind of like when you file your taxes and it says, you owe us, nice, nice to know you. Um, or here's your refund and here's the amount back. It would, you could just find that out right away. Like, when you did your taxes with the FAFSA. It's like, if you went to City, you'd pay this. If you went to SUNY, you'd pay this. You wanna go to Harvard, great. You make 26,000, they're gonna pay for it anyway. Who cares is 45,000 or 55 or whatever it is? So that's what I'd say. Me too. <laughs> I'd say that and I'd say, change the parent plus loan back to the way it used to be because when they change the criteria and put the cap on the Parent PLUS loan, it shut out thousands of students who were already enrolled in college. At least 
those students should have been grandfathered in under the old guidelines so that they could have finished. It particularly hit the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities that generally have no endowment whatsoever to give students. So many students are paying using the Parent PLUS loan and whole legions of students had to leave schools because of that change in the Parent PLUS loan. So I think if we change the poverty scale, put the Parent PLUS loan back where it was and reduce the interest, interest rate on all federal loans. Right. It should be zero. Absolutely. It should be zero. I think we're done then. So uh, thanks to the panel and thank you for your excellent questions from the audience. listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.